0: and prostate cancer. For decades now, the medical establishment has had a false assumption that testosterone replacement therapy increases a man's risk of prostate cancer. Fortunately, this belief has been shown to be incorrect, and medical opinion has begun to shift quite dramatically, with good evidence that testosterone therapy is quite safe for the prostate. There is now even a growing concern that low testosterone is a risk for prostate cancer rather than high testosterone. Today's guest, Dr. David Jablonski, and I, are going to unmask the fallacies around this fascinating topic. We are also going to be able to deep dive not only into his clinical experience, but also his personal experience with prostate cancer. Dr. David Jablonski has been practicing medicine for over 20 years. He is board certified in internal medicine. He completed his residency at the prestigious University of Rochester School of Medicine. Dr. Jablonski does still actively practice and is the medical director at Victory Men's Health. He is also frequently called upon to be an expert witness in medical malpractice cases. So today, we welcome Dr. David Jablonski to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Amy. Great to be here.
0: So let's start really basic here. But I think there's a lot of guys I probably don't know. What is a prostate?
1: You are so right. I've heard some very intelligent men give me some very interesting theories on the prostate. It's actually a very small gland. It's about the size of a walnut. It's often compared to that. And it's a a gland that sits in the pelvis and it surrounds the beginning of the urethra as it leaves the bladder, you know, where the urine flows out. So the purpose of the prostate basically is it creates most of the semen. And so when a man ejaculates, that gland will then go ahead and, and, and push seminal fluid right into the urethra. So that's really about it. Most men sort of tie it to a lot of other potential bodily functions, but but really has a very simple purpose.
0: And I think most men know what testosterone is, but just to reiterate, it's what makes a man a man. And testosterone is the key male sex hormone that regulates fertility, muscle mass, fat distribution, and red blood cell production. So now that we have our basis here, let's get started on testosterone and prostate cancer. So where did the original fear and theory come that testosterone and prostate cancer were somehow correlated?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I graduated residency, well, I graduated medical school in 1998 and then residency in 2001. So when I was a med student and a resident, it was just a given that supplementing a man with testosterone might cause or exacerbate or unleash a prostate cancer. It wasn't even really questioned. It was sort of considered a fact. It's interesting because the if you go into the literature and really try to drill down into how this came to be, this thought process, there's not much to it. There's a very small study with only three men back to the early 1940s that was published showing what claimed to be a cause and effect relationship between testosterone supplementation and prostate cancer. It's a study that would never stand up to uh, today's standards or change the way we practice medicine. And yet, this happens sometimes in medicine. We try to stick to the science and try to find evidence, but it's why you need to question the evidence and the studies, and it's why just because it's published doesn't always mean it's correct or relevant. So only recently, when I say recently, I would say 20 years ago for me roughly is when I met a man who started the Cenogenics Medical Clinic in Las Vegas. And they're a really credible organization. I did a lot of time with them and, and learned a lot about hormones and hormone optimization in men and women, for that matter. And I sort of look at this Dr. Alan Mintz, who's who since passed away, but great guy, and he was kind of a pioneer. A lot of people haven't heard of him. He already realized that there is not a correlation between testosterone and prostate cancer in the sense that it could cause it or exacerbate it. And so it's been a very slow process to catch on. There are still many doctors out there just because of when they trained, and they, they may not specialize in this area, still assume that... Testosterone supplementation can cause prostate cancer, and it's just absolutely not true. There is so much data now and experience with this that shows that it is, in fact, not a correlation.
0: You're exactly right. There's so much clinical-based evidence and studies to support it that it's hard to understand why we still have patients coming in who say their family practice doctor doesn't support them on testosterone. And this isn't a knock at all family practice doctors. I'm not trying to throw a blanket statement out that this pertains to all of them, but we do see that a lot, that patients are saying this. Why do you think that is? Because we know today that hormone optimization is crucial to how we age.
1: Exactly. And like you said, it really is a slow process. You know, one of the downfalls of medicine and modern Western medicine is that once an idea gets accepted across the country as being fact or more likely, then if there's new data later on that that comes up that maybe disproves that, doctors can be slow to adapt. And it also may be that there's so much information to keep up with nowadays. You can't read everything about every topic. And so there may be many doctors out there, uh, probably more in primary care, which is actually what I am, I'm an internist. There may be many doctors out there that are not necessarily keeping up with this particular issue. So they may be great doctors in treating your diabetes and hypertension and, and cardiovascular disease, et cetera, but they just don't really keep up with this particular topic in terms of hormone optimization. So it, it's a, it's a process and it's just education.
0: But what's interesting to me is that they have such a visceral reaction over it. It's not, it's not typically, oh well, that's not my area of expertise, or I would like to defer to somebody else on that. It's usually get off of it. No, it, 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 <laughs> right,
1: right, you're right, you're right. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like an anger. That's you're right. Visceral is a good description. But you have to be very humble, and you have to realize that things you thought were true years ago. You may need to be open to looking at new data, new thought process, new science that's come out that gets you closer to the real facts.
0: Well, isn't that why it's called the practice of medicine? Because it should be always evolving.
1: Exactly, exactly. And it's not like, I don't want people to think that, oh, you know, you doctors, you know, you, you, you know, one day you say this, the next day you say the opposite. I don't think that's what it looks like. I think it's just the evolution of, of our knowledge base. And hopefully over time, we just get smarter. I mean, every now and then we really blow it, right? There's something that we, we took as fact and it changed the way we practice medicine only to find out a few years later, oops, we were wrong on that. You see it sometimes with medications that come out
0: and i think a pioneer on this topic dr morgan towler he presents at numerous anti aging conferences that we go to and he's he's a graduate of harvard university and he's entrenched in all the all the studies and he's very very well published and could be one of the most published doctors on this topic but he presents an interesting relationship between prostate cancer growth and testosterone through a saturation model, which is fascinating. And for me, it was kind of the aha moment for me because I had a hard time wrapping my mind around why urologists or oncologists would treat prostate cancer through hormone deprivation, meaning they would take away all the testosterone to treat the... try
1: to get down to zero.
0: Yeah, so I had a hard time wrapping my mind around this, but the saturation model that he presents was a moment where I had the breakthrough. I was like, oh, okay, I right. finally get it now. So maybe explain the saturation model.
1: Yeah, so it does sound contradictory, right? So exactly what you're saying. You know, you on one hand, we're saying it doesn't cause prostate cancer. Testosterone supplementation does not cause prostate cancer oh, you have prostate cancer that's metastasized, so you have a bad case, we're gonna give you a medication that completely deprives your body of any testosterone. That's the goal, right? So it does, I, I can see why people get confused with it. And you're right, the saturation model really reconciles that. So simplistically, if you just think of a bucket and you are gonna fill that bucket up with water, and once the bucket's full, you can't fill it any more than that, right? If you keep pouring water on, it just flows over. It doesn't fill the bucket anymore. So think of that bucket as a testosterone receptor. And the prostate gland has many testosterone receptors. And once your body's testosterone level hits, according to the studies in this model, about 250, I believe it's nanograms per per deciliter for the nerds out there, right? And so once it hits about 250 is where those those receptors are saturated. Those testosterone receptors are saturated. So anything you add to that is not going to make something worse. But if you had cancer, the goal would be to take you from below that 250 down, you know, just keep going down to zero. So that does reconcile that. Does that that make sense?
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's like a sponge when you fill it with water. It can only take on so much water before the water just pours off the sponge. And... We see, obviously, thousands of patients at Victory Men's Health, kind of like you mentioned, and most of them are coming in with a T-level right around that 250, meaning that their testosterone receptors are already completely saturated.
1: Exactly. I would say 95% of the guys that, that we're seeing here have testosterone levels greater than 250. We have some that are in the hundreds, but we have, we have people that come in with diseases that cause low testosterone, like hemochromatosis, we pituitary tumors, et cetera. So we get those oddball cases, but by far and away, the, the average guy is already coming to us feeling like he has low testosterone, even though his receptors are on the prostate are, are saturated. And that's roughly that 250 level.
0: And Morgan Tyler even did studies taking men's T levels up over 3,000 nanograms. I mean, just huge super physiological doses of testosterone, and it marked no change in the prostate. Just to hammer home this point that even massive doses of testosterone are not going to make any change to that prostate cancer.
1: Exactly. And now we, we've got study after study. I mean, if, if people are interested in this topic, we can refer them to many of these studies and not just one, but but many of them.
0: We briefly mentioned that low testosterone mask of PSA, and I want to touch on that a little more with an actual patient scenario, because we do occasionally see this where the patient's low testosterone is hiding their actual PSA level, and it's ultimately exposed once their T levels are moved back into normal range. I'm also going to attach a few studies in the show notes for reference on this if the listeners want to learn more about it. But back to the patient scenario, let's say we have a 45 year old male with a T level starting at about 250 and a PSA coming in about 1.5 on his initial lab draw. Then the patient comes back for follow up at about three months and his T levels are now optimal and his PSA bumped up a little to three. So we know that cancer didn't magically appear in three months from starting on testosterone and that the prostate receptors are already fully saturated with a T level of 250. This is a classic case of where low T was masking his actual PSA number. So how would you handle this patient moving forward?
1: Sure. So there's a few things we can do. So in this scenario where you see a a PSA, it's called PSA velocity, meaning it moved fast over a relatively short period of time. So if you go from, say, one and a half to three in three months, I'm going to take notice of that. But I'm also going to realize that the absolute number on the PSA is relevant, too. So I think differently about a guy who's got a PSA of 20 than I do in a guy who went from one and a half to three. So these guys that have these sort of lower level PSAs, but they bumped up more than we're comfortable with, we will often go ahead and do some additional testing. And that would consist of, and, and there's other ones out there, but we like to use the um, OPCO, that's O-P-K-O, 4K score. And that's a validated test. Insurance covers it. It's used at many of the major medical centers uh, around the country. And that helps us risk stratify. We can get a percentage assigned to that patient through a simple blood test, that tells us how likely they have a clinically significant prostate cancer as opposed to other causes that may make a man's PSA go up. You know, it could be that he has a benign hypertrophy of the prostate, which all of us guys get to some extent as we get older. It could be that he had prostatitis; it's it's an infection in the prostate. It could even be from you know kinky sex, you know something up into the uh, into the rectum that stimulated the the prostate, and then he had a blood test done. You know, three hours later, biking, motorcycles, things that agitate the prostate can make that go up. So we consider all of those things, but we've got this nice tool. Oh, and then a prostate MRI. It's being widely used now to take a close look at the prostate itself. It's it's painless. They don't have to insert anything inside of you. Expensive, yeah, yeah. You know, if we can avoid a, a, an invasive biopsy, that's kind of the objective is to not over-biopsy guys.
0: So is the average age still around 50 that it's recommended to get your PSA checked?
1: Yeah, that's that's still the typical guideline. Now, there's exceptions. We know that men of African descent have a higher incidence of prostate cancer, and it may present earlier. So I like to start screening my my black patients at 45, and there's a lot of people that would agree with me on that. In addition, it may be wise to, to screen somebody earlier if they have a strong, compelling family history, or there's symptoms that concern you that the the prostate gland is not functioning properly. But on average, 50 is still the magic age, yes.
0: So... In the victory men's health setting, though, we're running everybody's PSA. So every every patient that walks through the door, regardless of their age, we're grabbing a baseline PSA on, which is interesting because data's power, right? So I think there's power in watching the velocity change because the gold standard's kind of been, if your PSA is under four, you're fine. So if we see a young male, let's say at 35, 30 years old, and we're consistently watching his PSA climb... Well, that velocity change is going to have us pause a little bit and take a look at that, where if he was just to show up at age 50 and get a PSA test, he wouldn't have all that data behind him. Do you agree? Yeah,
1: it's really helpful. And that's why we're catching men that have early prostate cancers and, unfortunately, a few that have relatively aggressive prostate cancers at earlier ages. I mean, it's not impossible... For a man to have prostate cancer at age 40 or 45. It's rare, but we treat thousands of men. So we we see it. Just like a woman, you know, you don't think of women getting breast cancer at age 28, but I have patients that have in fact had breast cancer at age 28. So you have to always be, you know, you don't want to miss that one guy. It's also interesting to maybe just throw out that the PSA really should be matched for the age of the patient. We expect the PSA to go up as we get older, but if you're a 40-year-old man with a PSA of three, that's high. Yeah, it's below four, because we've been brainwashed that if it's below four, it doesn't matter. If it's 3.999, you're fine. Yeah, But if you're a 40-year-old man with a PSA of three, that's high, and- I'm going to be very suspicious that that man could be predisposed to prostate cancer. In fact, there's some of my colleagues in urology that, and I think you'll, you'll see data that, that maybe will come down the road here, but I have some very intelligent urology colleagues that will tell me that a PSA of over one in a 40 year old man could be a marker for prostate cancer later on. So we've now started to watch that. We're just very aggressive in catching it. And it's really so easy to do. We're getting these labs. We get, we do get these panels that are helpful. And yeah, we've got we get PSAs on a 25 year old.
0: Well, and we're not insurance driven, so the insurance companies aren't going to dictate when they feel like we need to start monitoring that data. Oh my god, exactly. You know, we can Thank take god. control of our own health.
1: Exactly. We we don't have to run it by them and worry about the patient getting a bill because insurance said no way. This patient's 49 and a half; they don't qualify for a PSA. That's right.
0: Yeah, I, I find that fascinating. Like uh, fluoride treatments and dental. Always cracked me up. You remember those fluoride trays or, or varnish that you would get, and then at eighteen, it just stopped. Like your teeth at eighteen years old, just all of a sudden stopped absorbing fluoride. Yeah. You know, you think it might be it insurance was, driven. It was there? all insurance driven. Yeah, everything well, is insurance stops covering it at eighteen. So therefore, but fluoride's a whole other different topic, has its own controversies around it. But that's an interesting way to get your mind around the way that insurance works.
1: Yeah. And studies, when recommendations are made and guidelines are put out, remember it's, it's based on large populations and you may not always, you have to look at the individual and are they like the population that's in the study or maybe they're a little different. So you, they call them guidelines for a reason. They're a guideline. They're not a law. God didn't come down and, and say, here's how it's going to be. And so we, we as physicians need to be open to outliers.
0: So you've actually had prostate cancer, and I want to talk about your journey a little bit and the physician that treated you because I think he's fantastic, and we refer a lot of patients there, and we're definitely on the same page, and he's very, very well-respected in urologist so throughout the country. So let's, let's talk about
1: that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so I'm a perfect example. What am I now? I'm 57, so when I, when I was 55, I noticed in my own... PSAs that I had been kind of monitoring. I have no family history. I had no symptoms like most guys with prostate cancer. But mine was going like, you know, two and a half. Now it's three and a quarter. Now it never got much over four and a half, I believe. So it wasn't like real high PSA. But again, it goes back to this PSA velocity. It was moving a little too quickly over time. So I, of course, as a physician and been in the community a long time, I do have the, the privilege of being able to call up some of the top people and they'll take my phone call, right? So I called up the at the time and he just moved on to Johns Hopkins. But Dr. Andriel was the chief of virology over at Washington University and Barnes Hospital in St. Louis. And so I went and saw him and he is, he's a great guy. And, and if he... Listens to this, uh, then I hope he's blushing because you know he was he's he's amazing. I've sent many many patients to him now, but we ended up doing a couple of things. I did that 4K score that we talked about earlier, and my score was I think it was around it was just over what the cutoff is, just enough to annoy us. Yeah, I think seven and a half is the cutoff, and mine was initially like around twelve or thirteen, meaning. 12 or 13 percent chance that I might have a a clinically meaningful prostate cancer. Not that high, right? I'll take those odds to Vegas. But he said, look, look, we're just going to kind of keep an eye on this. And we watched that PSA sort of tick up just a little faster than we thought it should. So that resulted in the MRI. And my MRI was, was in that sort of gray zone. It's probably benign, but maybe not. <laughs> so I think it's a scale called Pyrads, And so mine, for those out there who are really technical, mine was a PIRADS uh, 3. Pyrads 1 is is you don't have cancer. But none of these tests by themselves are perfect, okay? And you, you have to understand that there's no magic here. So you have to kind of put everything together. And ultimately, he said, look, let's do a biopsy. We're not sure. So, so we did. And Initially, it came back at a very low stage, Gleason 6 prostate cancer, not enough to do anything with. We watched it, re a year or so later, and then it, it was a, a Gleason 7. And that's usually, you know, I'm a healthy 57-year-old, so I don't want to sit on this thing for 10 years only to find out in 10 years now I've got metastatic prostate cancer. So I was aggressive. I had mine taken out. He did a great job. But, I think one of the points we need to make back to this testosterone is Dr. Andrew Hill knew that I was on testosterone replacement. He had no problem with it. Number one number two, when I had a Gleason six prostate cancer, he let me stay on it. Now, he may not have known this, but I would have stayed on it anyways, but I'm glad that he had I had his blessings <laughs> It's because I feel so good on it. I don't know why all men aren't being treated this way when when they're confronted with this situation. So, yeah, I know about it personally. I'm on testosterone. I'm not ever going to come off of it until I die. And that's how, how much of an impact this hormone makes on men's sense of well-being, vigor, sexual function, mindset, energy, all that stuff.
0: So you ended up having a radical prostatectomy, correct? I, I did. Okay. So there's side effects to that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about them. And particularly, erectile dysfunction.
1: God, this is personal, huh?
0: <laughs> well, we can talk about it. We have patients that come in with radical prostatectomies, and yeah, they have do. erectile dysfunctions. And yeah. it's it. Or sooner you treat it, the better the outcome. So let's talk about the treatment options for those patients, and we'll sure. act like you didn't have it done.
1: And you know me well enough, so you know that I actually don't have the emotion of embarrassment. So I'm just being silly. So yeah, the radical prostatectomy, and you know, d- let me just preface this by saying. Any guy with prostate cancer is a unique person. There's there's many different options that that guy may have, depending on many variables. So I'm not suggesting that everybody with any prostate cancer go get a radical prostatectomy. It was the right decision for me. But there's a lot of guys that will face it. The r- radical prostatectomy is the medical term, because we, we think of radical as being like, you know whoa, crazy extreme, right? No, it, in a medical sense, uh, in this context, it means they take the whole thing out. That's all. And they do it laparoscopically, and they do it often laparoscopically with a robot. Depends on the surgeon. There are very few of the old school procedures done that are called open procedures, where they really cut you open and go deep in your pelvis. Because that prostate, if you think of your bladder, or your bladder is, you remember, it's down in that level. It's near things, like like the rectum. You know, it sits right up next to it. So you want a really good surgeon. You don't want anything getting poked or perforated that that shouldn't be. So get a, a high volume surgeon. That's, that's the key. So I was scared to death to have mine done. I'll be honest with you. I'm a, a great doctor, but a rotten patient. The reality is it was really no big deal. I had it taken out. Dr. Andrell did it. It was about a two hour procedure. I woke up and honestly, it was very minimal discomfort. The only part that is not enjoyable about it <laughs> is you have to wear a catheter in your, in your bladder for a week. And that's because the the uh, urethra needs to heal. That's annoying. And that's really what keeps you home for a week after. But it's annoying. It wasn't horrible. It was no big deal. You, you you go to sleep. You wake up. It's already put in. And you just take it easy for a week. Minimal, minimal discomfort. I was so much more scared in anticipation than I really needed to be. But yeah, so two big things that might happen. And it depends on your fitness level and your health as you go into the surgery, like any surgery. But you're going to come out with erectile dysfunction. There is no way around that. Even in these nerve-sparing operations, they get pulled or stretched, or the cautery guns sometimes cause a little heat to damage the nerves. You're going to have erectile dysfunction, so just plan on it. And you're going to have a little bit of urinary incontinence, some guys more than others. This goes to show you it's it pays to stay healthy, like working out and staying fit and and hitting the gym a few times a week. And not smoking and and trying to not be obese because you're going to go through these surgeries much easier. So the incontinence part, Amy, I mean, honestly, I took the catheter out. I think for a week I was like, uh, oh, I better be careful. And after about a week or so, it's been what now, maybe eight months since I had it done. I, it doesn't even cross my mind anymore. Like I don't even think about, oh, wait, I can't go out without, I, like I don't have to wear pads or undergarments. I mean, it's just, it's just normal. So that part, and I, I think the statistics on that are almost hundred percent of the guys will, will recover continence over, over a year to two. But honestly, a lot of guys like me within two weeks, they're, they're able to control that. The erectile dysfunction can be a little bit more challenging because there's a process and nerves grow and heal very, very slowly. So it's a bit of a journey working in a men's health clinic that focuses on hormone optimization, wellness, and sexual function, we know there's many things that can be done to help a guy, even who's had a radical prostatectomy, still keep an active, healthy sex life. And there's probably a separate topic, which would be erectile rehabilitation after the surgery. There is such a thing.
0: You had a whole team, didn't you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I do want
0: to talk a little bit about the treatment options for the erectile dysfunction, such as... Trimix, right? That's a great option right out of the gate. It's a little injection of the base of the penis that I don't want to say an instantaneous erection, but...
1: Pretty damn close. Yeah, pretty darn (laughs) close.
0: Using a pump, a vacuum pump right, is also great therapy. And then as you get a little farther out post-surgery, looking at things like wave therapy.
1: The Viagra-type medicines, the yeah, PDE5 inhibitors. Those yeah. daily
0: Cialis and stuff, you can start early on.
1: You can too. actually do a lot of this stuff early. My personal opinion is really right out of the gate, you know, once that catheter comes out and you, you're getting out of bed moving around you your, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks even, I mean, you could start doing all this stuff It definitely is use it or lose it. And so the wave therapy, which uses a a special frequency ultrasound, is being used more and more in erection rehabilitation after radical prostatectomies. But you can combine it all. That's what's great. And so it's not going to be just like it used to be, but you can get back to that over time. But you don't have to wait two years so you can have a normal sex life. So, And how often do we
0: see that? Men come in. Oh, I haven't had an erection in years, and yep. now all of a sudden they have a date or an anniversary, and now they expect an erection in two days. It's like, oh my gosh! Like you, you need. Uh, we should have addressed this earlier, yeah. and then we could have had a resolution sooner. Here, yeah,
1: exactly. But at least, like with you mentioned, Trimix, which is it's a medication that consists of three separate medications, but it's just in a little syringe. It's like a diabetes insulin needle, and. While that might make most guys cringe, the idea of you putting a needle into your base of your penis, I can tell you from experience, you know, that it's really no big deal. It's not that painful. It's just a, just ever slight, so slightly uncomfortable for, you know, what a second. And it's pretty close to instant gratification. The key though to erections after prostate cancer treatment is, you know, whatever you went into this is how you would come out. So you, if you, if you went into surgery or treatment or radiation, whatever it might be, and you had severe erectile dysfunction, you're not going to come out of this. It's like golf, you know, you, if your golf came sucked before surgery, it's going to suck after surgery. It's not magic. So the biggest indicator of outcomes is what you were like right before your, your treatment. That being said, we treat guys at all different levels. And and then there's there's the the, the ultimate Hail Mary which is there are these uh, penile prosthesis, right? So we don't do those here but we send off to specialized urologists. I mean there there is that option as as a last resort and the technology is is pretty pretty damn good. So
0: And I would say inside the clinic trimix typically is our last resort, right? We're not starting there for the average patient. Yeah, exactly. I mean it, it, this surgery is kind of a unique situation, but I know there's other Men's health clinics that that's kind of their first line of defense, oh my, and it really yeah. shouldn't be. I mean, there's so many other things like exactly. wave therapy is amazing. I mean, that's definitely the biggest breakthrough to erectile dysfunction treatment since Viagra hit the market. I mean, right. our success rate with wave therapy right. is astounding.
1: And and the great thing is you can combine these things. So wave therapy with uh, a Cialis or a Viagra, maybe add in the pump. All of these things in combination can you know, there's guys that never thought they were going to be feeling so normal again in that department who who now are just because we can offer them all these uh, all these treatment modalities.
0: So, I actually think we could do a part 2 to this podcast because there's still a lot that we could talk about on this topic, but wrapping this one up, the relationship of testosterone to prostate cancer has undergone a significant reevaluation and all the recent evidence has reinforced the position that testosterone therapy is absolutely safe for the prostate. To the patient that's listening or to the patient's wife that's listening, what would you say to drive this point home?
1: You just said it. I mean, the biggest takeaway from from our discussion is testosterone replacement does not cause prostate cancer, period. It doesn't. There's all these reasons we mentioned of, of why there's still doctors out there and why people have this, you know, believe this really what I call a myth now, a medical myth that that it does, but that is an outdated concept and paradigm we know better now. I'm not radical for suggesting it. I am in very good company with some extremely experienced physicians and researchers. Anyways, there's there's all this data now. And I think doctors are scared of lawyers too, right? So if there's lawyers out there that still think because they're medical malpractice attorneys and and they may be stuck in something 20 years old too, in terms of their understanding. So doctors are, are worried about getting sued and all that, but I am not because it's it's the standard of care. Men shouldn't suffer from low testosterone. It's really what makes when your testosterone levels go down, you are assured you're going to become the little old man. And you don't have to. It really is not necessary. It, it's, you gotta take care of yourself still. You, you you don't wanna be overweight. You don't wanna smoke, you don't wanna drink too much alcohol, you gotta exercise. But the testosterone definitely pushes off the degenerative process and improves the quality of life. And we know that you can do it safely.
0: Well, Doc, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to be on the show. You're a wealth of knowledge. On the next episode, I'm probably going to get a little controversial, and I'm going to do an opinion piece on masculinity, and I would appreciate it if you follow and rate the show. Every little bit helps, and I appreciate you tuning in. Have a great day.